0: Good evening You guys hear me in the back, okay great well, you made it through another day It's not easy It takes a lot of courage, I think, to, uh, to be naked in this way that we are, in this practice, to just uh, show up again and again with the bare experience of our senses and our mind, and to keep facing whatever arises. Without anywhere to escape, nowhere nowhere to turn, no TV, no radio, no tablet or phone, not even the conversation with the roommate or partner or friend. you know it's really just just you and the mind and the body. And yet, this is, uh, this is what we have, right? This is, this is the kit, this is what we get in this life. In all of its uh, wonder, the sort of incredible, amazing mystery of being able to perceive the world, to feel the wind, or hear a bird, or taste piece of lettuce and, and all of the insanity of this mind yeah. how many worlds did you visit today right? how many highs, how many lows, how many totally boring neutral zones <laughs> yet there's something quite profound happening there's a a transformation that's occurring that we can't always see from the inside as we're going through it my uh... my beloved mother turned seventy last summer and about maybe about five years ago when she was sixty five or so she uh... wanted to dye her hair red she said to me, you know, I, I always wanted to be a redhead. What do you think, Oren? Can I do it? I said, go for it, Mom. I said, yes, you know, why not? Was, uh, she had black hair uh, growing up. And then as she aged, obviously it grayed, and she lightened it so it was brown. She was dyeing her hair. So, um, so she dyed her hair red for a few years, and she loved it, you know, kind of a, an auburn red and so, uh, sometime in the year before she turned seventy when she was still sixty nine uh she said i'm "I'm sick of coloring my hair. you know, I've been doing this for decades i think I'm thinking of just letting it go natural, just going great, but i'm really I'm really scared. I don't know if I can do it. What do you think or and I said, "Mom, go for it. it. sounds great, you know, I'm sure it'll look awesome, really. Go for it." so she did and she loves it it's just this bright silver it's beautiful and uh and it's it's fascinating because there's this very kind of uh young joy in allowing herself the fullness of just the way she just being just the way she is so uh those Those who have lived that many decades tell me that it's one of the privileges that one earns, you know, to just not worry so much about the judgment or thoughts of others and be able to just be yourself just the way you are. Uh, We don't really have to wait, though, you know. You don't have to wait. To just let yourself be exactly the way you are and for that to be enough and for that to be joyful. And that's one of the gifts of this practice is that it it allows us um, to discover that and to really uh, fully inhabit our lives in this way. one of the main things that gets in the way of that of letting our hair go natural so to speak to use that metaphor is the way we talk to ourselves uh, the way we talk to ourselves inside So think back on these last three days that you've been here and just imagine for a moment What these last three days would have been like had there been no self-judgment, no self-disparagement, no self-doubt, no not good enough, no can't do it, no I don't get it. How would, the, how would these days have been? We all have this kind of narrator inside, this inner dialogue that's often quite critical. You know, it can actually be really scathing at times. I can't do it. Everyone's getting it but but me. There's something wrong with me. Or then it starts to turn into the, you know, You're no good at this. You'll never get the hang of this. You should have done something else. You're wasting your vacation time here. Bad choice. You screwed up again. How would it be instead if that voice were the voice of a friend? Of a patient, loving, steady friend? Wow, this is really hard but we're doing it, it's okay. Take your time. You know, just one step at a time, you can do this, it's gonna be all right. Okay, relax, take it easy, just one breath, one breath at a time, how would that be? You know, and just consider for a moment, I'm sure you've had moments of both, right, inside where there's that like, yeah, you're not here, yeah, that that sort of digging voice, and then the other side, the kind-hearted, patient, loving, more accepting, even if just, just a glimpse of it sometimes, right? It's just different worlds, just night and day, right? Sometimes it can seem like meditation makes us a meaner person. <laughs> it's like, God, I thought I was so nice, or... I thought I was so sane and then all of a sudden I come to this start meditating and I'm a nutcase. <laughs> There's something wrong with this practice. It's not me. <laughs> it's it's like uh it's like all the crazies come out. I, I used to I I'll talk about this a little more later. I spent some time um living at some of the Buddhist monasteries in our tradition and um the abbot was away at one monastery for a while and one of the one of the monks started having some crazy ideas and one of the other guys said, yeah, when the abbot leaves, all the, squ- all the squirrels come out. It's like, you know, it's like you get in there and like all the crazy stuff starts bouncing off the walls. One of the yogis in one of my groups today uh, called it her secret brain. It's like my secret brain comes out, you know, <laughs> the things that, that we don't let ourselves see or hear so often in our, in our lives, because we keep our attention occupied somewhere else, doing something else. Uh, But then we we peel all that away, and the mind is kind of laid bare. And we start to see, like, what's running in the background a lot of the time. And a lot of the time it's not so pretty. So all this angst and dis-ease in there this boredom and annoyance and restlessness and hankering, wanting something, all the hindrances that Annie talked about last night. And then you just kind of watch it and it's exhausting just kind of being with all of these crazy characters in there. But, you know, it's it's not not just you. (laughs) Really, it's not. That's why we can sit up here and do this. I think, um, I'm not sure if it was Winnie maybe who was saying the other night that once you get in there, our minds are all the same. They're all working in the same way. So you, you go back to the um, to the early texts in the Theravada tradition and you read about the Buddha's enlightenment and for anyone who's familiar with the story, it wasn't pretty when he sat under that tree before he was awakened. He was visited by a lot of really dark forces. And one of the strongest ones right before his moment of awakening was the voice of doubt, self-doubt. It's personified in the text as Mara, but it's that voice that said, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to be sitting here trying to get enlightened, trying to wake up? What right do you have? And this... um, this image that we have here and is kind of all over the world is his response to that question. Is He reached down and touched the earth. The earth is my witness. This, this very living, breathing planet of which we're each a part is our witness to our right, our birthright to be here and to be awake and to be free. James Baldwin who's one of the great authors and poet, playwright and social critics of the 20th century said, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing, excuse me, nothing can, be fi- nothing can be changed until it is faced. And that's what we're doing here, is we're facing everything, and not all of it can be changed. Some of it can and will be, but all of it can be released, all of it can be freed from the heart. So tonight happens to be a very auspicious night to be on retreat. It's the full moon, which in um, many traditional cultures, the Buddhist culture being one of those, is a lunar calendar and so each full moon is a different uh, sort of phase. And this particular full moon is something called Magapuja. Puja, Magga means great and puja means offering. And this particular full moon commemorates a day in the Buddha's life where um, it's said that um, uh, 1,250 or sometimes 1,000 arahants, fully awakened beings uh, of his disciples spontaneously gathered together for a teaching from the Buddha. So it's one of the four major um, kind of holiday puja celebrations in the Buddhist tradition. So all around the world, this evening in monasteries, monastics, uh, it's traditional will sit up all night, practicing or or very very late, uh, in honor of this uh, occasion and expressing their dedication and commitment to awakening, to facing everything as the Buddha did that night underneath the tree, as as James Baldwin said so eloquently, nothing can be changed until it is faced. So the, the Buddha told an interesting story to his disciples about what it means to be enlightened. Um, he said, you know, what's the difference between one of my enlightened disciples and just sort of your ordinary person on the street? Would you like to know? And he said, yeah, <laughs> what's the difference, Lord? And So he says, well, you know, everyone experiences difficult, painful, and unpleasant things in life. Everyone has unpleasant feelings. Oh. He says, the difference is when an ordinary person experiences something unpleasant, it's like they're shot with an arrow. Ah. Says, that ordinary person being shot with one arrow shoots a second arrow. They lament and beat their breast. Why? Why me? Oh how awful, how terrible, this shouldn't have happened. And in so doing they shoot a second arrow and make it worse. He says an awakened being is hit with one arrow unpleasant feeling, painful, difficult things, but it stops there. They don't shoot that second arrow. And that's the difference. So we can't get away from unpleasant things. And if you're here thinking that this practice will free you from all unpleasant things in your life, you're uh, in for some disappointment. But it can free you from that second arrow, from the unnecessary pain that we inflict upon ourselves by reacting. That second arrow is what we do with the things life brings us. It's, it's how we respond, how we relate to that first arrow. Our reactivity. So this extra layer of reactivity that we add, that, get, that gets us so kind of caught up and entangled, one of the most common ways that this shows up and that we can see very clearly in our meditation practice, is how we talk to ourselves that inner narrator. You know, what's it doing in relation to whatever's happening? And much of the time, it's shooting lots more arrows. It's just pulling them out of the quiver, you know? this sucks, I hate this, I can't do this, this is no good, I'm never going to get anywhere, arrow after arrow after arrow, right? It's riding on this wave of reactivity in the heart. Sometimes we don't see the reactivity in the heart, but we hear its voice. So that voice keys us in to what's going on inside. Uh, One yogi was talking about saying, you know, I feel actually for the first time on retreat, like I feel okay. It's like everything's fine. And then I start worrying, there must be something wrong. I must be doing something wrong because I feel okay. (laughs) It's like we're so conditioned to expect to suffer that as soon as it stops, we kind of get destabilized. Or another yogi was saying like, you know, so I was meditating, and then the mind wanders away from the breath, and then I notice and come back, and I wasn't judging myself. It was just, okay, fine, just start over again. And then in the absence of that judgment, <coughs> the judgment arose, you must not be working hard enough. You should probably be trying harder because you're not judging yourself. Again, it's, it's so ingrained to do that, to shoot that second arrow. Sometimes we can be so hard on ourselves. When you listen inside or look inside, often we'll say things to ourselves that we would never, ever say to someone else. This practice has the power to transform that. Through this practice, through seeing what's happening inside, we really learn how to be careful, In in all ways, and particularly in how we talk to ourselves. And we learn how to be a good friend. How to be a good friend to ourselves. And then through that, how to free our mind. I was um, reading an article in the the Sunday Times about a man named Albert Woodfox, who's 69 years old, uh, and spent the last 45 years of his life in uh, prison, state prison in Louisiana for initially for um, armed robbery. And then um, he escaped and had been involved with the Black Panthers. And there was a murder in the penitentiary at that time in the seventies. And um, he and two other men who had been involved with the Black Panthers were convicted of the murder. And there was a lot of uh, controversy around the case and a lot of evidence suggesting that um, they were framed because of their involvement with uh, the political movement for black liberation. And um, his case was, uh, for the second time, finally um, retried and overturned, and he was released uh, this past Friday. And um, a reporter was asking him about his last, how he remembers his last day as a free, free man before he was um, incarcerated. And he said that, you know, he didn't particularly remember it it as a feeling of freedom at that time, age 22 in New York. uh, And he said that he, he really discovered freedom much later after years of reading in prison, reading Marcus Garvey and Malcolm X, Nelson Mandela. And he said, uh, when I began to understand who I was, then I considered myself free. He said, no matter how much concrete they used to hold me in a particular place, they couldn't stop my mind. This is the the potential of our human spirit. There's a, a very well known movie some of you may have seen or be familiar with called "Doing, Doing Time, Doing Vipassana." Maybe it's "Doing Vipassana, Doing Time" about um, Vipassana retreats in prisons. And uh, there's a very famous book, um, "We're All Doing Time," and this this analogy of you know that we might not be in a prison. A physical prison, but we all live within the prison of our own mind, the prison of our own concepts, the prison of our own biases and tendencies and habits. And that's the true freedom, the inner freedom of the mind and of the heart that, that we have the potential to realize in this life. So this practice, is a, it's a kind of training, or rather a retraining of our mind. So in anything in life, uh, in particular in this practice, there's always two things. There's what we're doing, and there's how we're doing it. So there's your meditation technique, you're focusing on your breath, you're feeling you're walking, and then there's how you're doing that, how how you're relating to it, how you're engaging with it. And how we're practicing is very important. In some ways it's more important than what technique we're practicing. As the saying goes, practice doesn't make perfect, right? Practice makes permanent. What you practice will be what you recondition. This is a verse from uh, the Dhammapada, the uh, collection of quotes from the Buddha, who said, whatever harm an enemy may do to an enemy or one who hates do to another an ill-directed mind inflicts on oneself even greater harm. Neither mother nor father nor any other relative can do one greater good than one's own well-directed mind. So how are we meditating? How are we doing this? What's that inner voice? What's the tone? Is it pushing, judging, tightening, not good enough? Is it patient, relaxed, kind, open? That's what we're practicing. Whatever you do with your mind will will shape it. This mind is so impressionable. It's a learning machine. It comes into this world totally open and unformed. And every experience, it shapes it and molds it and conditions it. And then at a certain point, we become self-aware. And if we're lucky, that self-awareness grows and we become self-conscious. And all of a sudden, we start to realize, I don't know what I'm doing with my life, or how is this going, or what's going on? Or as Annie was saying last night, what's driving me in life? How am I making my decisions? And we start to see that it's all been shaped the good news is because it's been shaped, it can be reshaped. And this practice, one of the effects of this practice is to reshape the mind. And in that process, in that process of actually learning how the mind gets shaped, something something deep is understood about its nature that actually frees it when we understand the shaping process itself, how the mind actually works, something deeper opens up that's beyond any of the programs that are running. So with this practice, we're working on our mind and heart on the very thing that's, that's mediating all of our experience. It's like having glasses that you've worn your whole life and they're very dirty. And all of a sudden, someone gives you a cloth to clean them, and you never realized how dirty they were. So we're cleaning our heart, we're cleaning our mind, from all of the junk and the patterns and that have accumulated, and realizing, oh, don't need that one. You know, you worthless. uh, Don't really need that one anymore. You know, could 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 do with something else. So the way we're meditating and those second arrows you know get reflected in this inner voice in how we talk to ourselves that voice is arising from our intention our intention what, why we're doing something where where it's coming from the aim or the the sort of attitude of our heart and in practice there's there are three particular intentions or aims uh, that the Buddha pointed out as said, if, if you're interested in awakening, if you're interested in freeing your mind and heart, then these are, these are the three primary intentions you want to cultivate. Non-ill will, otherwise known as kindness. Non-cruelty. Have you been cruel to yourself this week? Otherwise known as compassion. And renunciation, letting go, simplicity, non-addiction, renunciation, those three. So this is useful to reflect on in your practice. Where am I coming from? Am I trying to get something? Well, that's not not the right intention. If what you're wanting is to wake up and free your heart. Letting go, renunciation, simplicity, that's the right intention. Are you beating yourself up well that's that's cruelty that's ill will that's not going to take you in direction of liberation it might work in other contexts to motivate you or get things done but it's not going to work here kindness compassion that'll work it'll actually work in the other areas too you need to see that for yourself so as i mentioned earlier i spent um I spent some time uh, living with the monastics for a couple of years uh, in, in white robes as a, a sort of novice. And um, I had a very hard time for a period, had a very high standard for myself and was really down on myself. And I happened to visit a monastery in, in New York State, uh, Chuang Yan Monastery, where Bhikkhu Bodhi was staying, one of the uh, tr- foremost translators of the early Pali texts. And I was talking to him about some of the self-hatred that I was experiencing and say, you know, what, what does it say about this in the suttas? Or, you know, what advice can you give me? And he said, well, there is this phrase in the suttas that recurs, that one should not despise oneself. One should not despise oneself. So this is about our intention. How are we relating to ourselves? So we can turn the tide. We can really shift this whole pattern of this inner tone from from one of negativity rooted in ill will or cruelty or all of the other unwholesome intentions to one of kindness and compassion and patience to actually one rooted in awakening. And the, the, the way of doing that is twofold. On the one hand, it's actually seeing. The negative voices really facing them and on the other hand actually cultivating and strengthening the right tone a more conducive attitude so I want to spend the rest of our time just talking about some ways to do this some of the ways to really see and work with those negative voices and then actually cultivate their opposite and actually bring that, that positive, um, more gentle and supportive tone of a friend in to our practice. Because the mind thinks, if you, if you haven't discovered this, it's, right. It just, that's just what it does. So we're not going to make the thoughts go away, that's not the point of the practice. So when the thinking is present, we might as well use it at times for our benefit actually engage it to support us rather than to work against us. So being careful how we talk to ourselves, not just here, just like really in our life, really starting to notice, how am I talking to myself? One of the ways to do this is to just have a question. It's like, what's the tone? What's my tone here? You know, what's the tone of this voice? And is that one I want to trust? Is that one I want to feed? Is that a voice I want to continue to encourage to be around? Or is that one I want to let go of? Is that one I want to not feed, to not give attention to? It can sometimes be helpful to start to like actually track what the top stories are that it throws up, you know, like what's the playlist of self-judgment that runs, you know, is it the doubt, is it the not good enough, Um, is it the, you know, I don't get it, not trying hard enough, I can't, you know, really, and sometimes to actually really listen carefully to what the voice is saying, so that you could actually write it down, or tell it to someone else word for word. Because sometimes it's so subtle that we, we can't actually really even hear it. It's just kind of this little voice in the background. I had a very powerful experience of this on my first three month retreat here. Um, I was doing walking meditation right out front here on the grass. And I was practicing very, very diligently. Um, a lot of continuity of practice, you know. Every sitting, walking in between all of the moments as often as I could, being really, really present, my mind was really into the walking, but there was a little bit of strain, a little bit of struggle in it that I couldn't quite you know get and the bell rang for the sitting, and I kind of paused as I'm just going to keep walking, there's something here, you know, and just lifting, moving, placing, lifting, moving very, very slowly. And just listening and looking, feeling patiently, lifting, moving, placing, lifting, moving. And then finally I caught it. There was this little voice in the back of my mind, lifting, moving, placing. Not quite good enough. Lifting, moving, placing. Still not good enough. Could have been better. You know, (laughs) not present enough, not mindful enough. Does this sound familiar? I saw it so clearly, I just started weeping. Because what I saw was not just that moment, but the the tide of not good enough that had been running through my whole life. That voice in everything, nudging, nagging, pushing behind me, not quite good enough, not quite good enough. I faced it, I really saw it, and there was a lot of sorrow that came with it, but it was liberating. And ever since that moment, that voice has has not had power over me. It might arise sometimes, very infrequently these days, but when it does, it doesn't catch me, you know, because I've seen it, I've seen it very clearly. And this is one of the ways that we can work with these is to actually see their harm, to see how unhelpful they are for us in our lives. It's useful to use humor sometimes, give it a name, dress it up as a little cartoon in your mind, you know, put clothes on it what is it doing make it really small give it big ears or a funny head it's like it it makes it like less less serious when we can do that ultimately really just seeing these voices is the primary means just bringing the mindfulness and just the bare awareness of them and when we come back into our direct experience in any moment a sensation a sound a breath there's no doubt there's no judgment in the moment of knowing something directly is there any doubt in the moment of feeling and in breath is there any judgment when you're actually with the breath, not the moment afterwards, the moment of the breath, right? It's just that. Sometimes it's important to just let it be in the background, to not give it any attention, like a radio that's just on or a TV in the other room that you're not watching. It can be there, just don't pay attention to it, put your attention somewhere else that's a very useful way of working with it sometimes sometimes really contacting the state you know what's underneath it is there is there fear is there sadness is there pain is there confusion actually inquiring a little bit and sensing what's going on here inside you know there's the voice but what's it riding on what's the energy what's the what's the emotion or the state and then to actually meet that and be with that nature can be very helpful just looking just contemplating nature you know when it gets if it gets really intense sometimes just look at the trees they're not judging you you know they don't have any problem with you <laughs> They're not judging themselves. They don't sit there and go, God, I wish I were taller. Look at those other trees. I'm too fat. My trunk's too wide. I wish I were skinnier. My branches are too low. They don't, it's crazy, right? But we do that. It's this particular form of insanity that we have as human beings. I think it's useful to understand a little bit about where this pattern comes from for us. And it's different for each of us, but there are a few kind of general general things that can be said about this, this voice, this tone, you know, that we've all inherited of not taking care with how we talk to ourselves. Some of it's evolutionary. There's what's called the negativity bias, right? Um, as Rick Hansen was. Uh, neuroscientist puts it he says um, our our brains are like velcro for negative experiences and like teflon for positive experiences and if you think back to the time when we were living um, more fending for ourselves on the savannah very important to remember all of the negative things that happened so that you wouldn't fall off that cliff or get eaten by that tiger you know and the positive things they didn't matter as much because it was about surviving So there's this way in which our minds are are kind of actually wired to to notice the negative things and watch out for them. So there's a little bit of a hard wiring there to this self-judgment even, because it's kind of like looking for the things that are wrong to protect us. But that bias actually then gets ingrained and, and learned by the messages we receive as we grow up from our family, from our culture, from our society, from school, we're all, we, all, we all go through a socialization process. And if you, you know, watch parents with children or if you, you know, have children of your own, you know, we see the kinds of things that come out of our mouths sometimes when we're at our wits end and don't know what else to do. And that kind of, that strategy of um, getting cooperation or behavior of judging, or shaming, you know, it gets internalized and then we do it to ourselves. So we learn it, we pick it up. Um, our self-worth gets, gets tied in with, with things, how much we can perform or do or become or have, how much we succeed, you know, and so then that becomes a measure by which we judge ourselves because we've lost touch with the, just the sense of value of just being alive and being human without needing to perform in any way. So then as a strategy to try to have that sense of worth, we we judge ourselves to try to accomplish, achieve, perform, or get. So I think it's important to recognize that these habits are learned, they're inherited, and that they're there for a good reason. They're there often to protect us or to to try to help us to get along to help us to achieve or accomplish. Um, so they started for a reason, but then at a certain point we outgrow them. They stop serving us. We see their limitations. And it becomes very clear in this context when all of the other things are cleared away. We see, we see how counterproductive it is to judge ourselves when we're trying to do something like, you know, thanks, man, that's really not helpful right now. <laughs> you know, like I'm trying my hardest, back off. Right? Sometimes this is what's necessary, is to, is to just be really firm. To so just have a very firm, no, enough, you know, stop. In the suttas, the Buddha talks about like gritting one's teeth and bearing down to prevent an unwholesome thought from arising. Sometimes that's the kind of energy that's needed. Really understanding what are the conditions that help us to learn, that help us to grow. So Winnie used this example of um, training a puppy, right? And you love that puppy up. You give it treats when it does what you want. You don't beat it. That's going to be a very disturbed puppy. It's not going to, you know, do what you want so well. You think about trying to teach a child mathematics. If every time the child gets a problem wrong, you berate it and, and you know tell him or her how stupid she is and how she's never going to get it and why do you even try and you probably shouldn't have even come to school today, that kid's not going to like math, <laughs> you know? But if a child gets a problem wrong and you say, oh, now that's interesting. How did you get that answer? Because I get a different answer. Show me what you did. I'm really curious. Let's, let's look at this together. No problem, right? So we learn when there's a sense of safety and we can relax. We learn when there's a sense of novelty. Oh, there's something new. And we get interested. It gets fun. So this is the, these are the kinds of conditions we want to support and create for ourselves in our practice. Safety, relaxation, interest, novelty encouragement so the reason we've been saying this return of awareness let it always be a good thing as when he said on the first day is that when we do that it creates a positive feedback loop the more we come back and are met with that kind of encouragement the more we want to come back because hey it's good to come back i get a treat if every time we come back what we get is a spanking We get slapped with a ruler. We get put down. Who wants to be here, right? Who wants to show up and be mindful if that's what we get met with, get slapped around? I'm out of here, you know? So the encouragement. And so this is where we start getting into really um, cultivating an inner voice of support. This is from uh, the Burmese Sayadaw Ujotika from his book, Snow in the Summer. He says... I don't want judgment, I want understanding. I am not perfect, so I'm scared of those who are judgmental. I've done a lot of unwholesome things in my life, but I don't blame myself or others. I'm trying to practice and I'm happy about that. So just this kind of loving acceptance One of the precepts is about right speech, noble speech, which in the context of our lives um, means not just not lying, but not using harsh speech, speech that's true, that's useful, that's kind, that's appropriate and timely. So how much is our inner speech, right speech, speech that's true, you can't do this. Is that really true? You're not good enough. Is that kind? Is that useful? You know, is this the right time to be engaging in that kind of critical analysis? Probably not. So the Buddha says, Abandoning harsh speech, one speaks such words as are gentle, pleasing to the ear and lovable. Words that go to the heart are courteous and desired by many, words that are agreeable to many. How lovely it would be if those were the words that were flowing inside, yeah? Agreeable, courteous, kind, gentle, pleasing, lovable. We have this primal need for acceptance and love and belonging. We can actually meet that need within, to a certain degree, in this tone, in how we speak to ourselves, in our practice and in our life, having having uh, right speech with ourself, and really starting to learn how to be a good friend, how to support our meditation practice with that voice rather than judge it. One of my first meditation teachers gave us a piece of advice. He said, learn to be your own best friend. What a lovely idea. You know. Yeah, the Buddha said something not that not that uh, dissimilar. He said uh, his attendant Ananda said it seems like the spiritual friendship is the uh, half of the holy life, half of this path and the Buddha said don't don't say that Ananda. Spiritual friendship is the whole of this holy life. It's the whole of this path of practice. That phrase can be understood in a few different ways. Um, Literal meaning that our friendship with one another is an essential and complete part of the path. It it means that um, friendship with that which is um, beautiful and and wholesome is the whole path, the, the wholesome states of mind but it also means that friendship with ourself, that's another meaning of it, that friendship with ourself, learning to be our own good friend, is the whole of this path. So can we develop a kind of inner vocabulary of awakening, an inner vocabulary that supports us, you know, that says, it's okay, just those two words, it's okay. Or take your time, take your time, slow down. Just go slow, relax, nowhere, nowhere to go, nothing to do. Just relax. sometimes we need certain experiences to help, help us internalize this voice. To hear that from someone else outside of us. To receive that permission and then we can internalize it and make it our own. But how we relate to ourselves, um, it's not just about our own awakening. It's really about how we are in the world because how we relate to ourselves becomes how we relate to others yeah and the whole history of our human species and the kind of tragedies that we inflict on one another all stem from these uh tendencies in our own hearts and minds to judge to belittle to devalue to hate so can there be this uh unilateral disarmament in the heart inside to stop the war here there's a very famous uh, uh Cambodian monk Mahagosananda, who's a, a well-known peace activist he walked in cambodia during the civil war um and he he marched in washington um on demonstrations against landmines and uh One of the things he said apparently during one of those marches was uh, the landmines and the anti-personnel mines that are in the ground began in our hearts. If we want to remove the landmines and the anti-personnel mines that are in the ground, we must first remove the landmines that are in our hearts. And so this is what we're doing with this practice. Very gradually, moment by moment, step by step, through facing what's happening directly is where we're uprooting those minds. This is from Mother Teresa who said, let us not use bombs and guns to overcome the world. Let us use love and compassion. Peace begins with a smile. Smile five times a day at someone you don't really want to smile to at all. Do it for peace. Peace. Smile to yourself. And this is the Buddha who said, hatred will never cease through hatred. Only through love alone does hatred cease. This is an eternal law. So be careful how you talk to yourself and learn to be your own good friend. Let's just sit quietly together for a moment. Thank you for your practice and for your kind attention.